This is VOA News, reporting by remote. I'm Michael Brown. The U.S. and South Korea are jointly warning North Korea that use of any kind of nuclear weapon against Seoul or other regional allies will result in the end of Kim Jong-un's regime. AP correspondent Ben Thomas reports. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin met with his South Korean counterpart at the Pentagon after North Korea launched more than two dozen missiles in response to U.S.-South Korean military exercises. The purpose of those exercises, says Austin, to strengthen our combined readiness and our ability to fight tonight if necessary. Through a translator, South Korean Defense Minister Lee Jong-sup says the U.S. and South Korea are united and resolute in their stance toward North Korea. Any nuclear attack by the DPRK, including the use of tactical nuclear weapons, is unacceptable and result in the end of Kim Jong-un regime by the overwhelming and decisive response of the alliance. Ben Thomas, Washington. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Thursday that Ukrainian forces can retake the strategic southern city of Kherson from Russian troops and would, would be a major defeat for Russia. Austin's remarks coincided with a Russian-installed official in Kherson region saying Moscow was likely to pull its troops from the west bank of the Dnipro River. If that statement is confirmed, it would signal a significant Russian retreat. Austin did not answer a question about whether Russian forces were preparing to leave, but he expressed confidence in their ability to beat back Russian forces. The region's capital and riverport, Kherson, is the only big city Russia has captured intact since its invasion began on February the 24th. Via remote, this is VOA News. Ethiopia's military held a memorial service for soldiers killed in two years of war the day after an agreement was signed calling for a permanent cessation of hostilities. The agreement obtained by the Associated Press calls for the disarmament of Tigray forces and federal control of the Tigray region and is designed to end a two-year war that is believed to have killed hundreds of thousands of people. The signed agreement, which hasn't been made public, spells out what the Tigray lead negotiator described at Wednesday's signaling, signing that is, as painful concessions. Ethiopian federal security forces will take full control of all federal facilities, installations, and major infrastructure such as airports and highways within the Tigray region. South African police are investigating the discovery of at least 21 bodies suspected of being illegal miners and found near an active mine just west of Johannesburg. Illegal mining gangs are considered dangerous by the police, usually armed and unknown to fight violent turf battles with rival groups. U.S. Embassy officials in Moscow had visited jailed WNBA star Brittany Griner just weeks after a Russian court rejected her appeal. AP correspondent Ben Thomas reports. Brittany Griner is serving a nine-year sentence. She was convicted of drug possession after Russian police said they found cannabis oil in her luggage at Moscow's airport. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. We are told she is doing as well as can be expected under the circumstances. The State Department adds the officials saw firsthand her tenacity and perseverance, and the U.S. is pushing for her immediate release, as well as that of Paul Whelan. He was sentenced in 2020 to 16 years in prison on espionage-related charges he and his family say are bogus. Ben Thomas, Washington. 
Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Thursday appeared set to return to power as head of Israel's most right-wing government ever after winning this week's national election, with the current caretaker, Prime Minister, conceding defeat. Final results showed Netanyahu's Likud party and its ultra-nationalists and religious partners capturing a solid majority in Israel's Knesset or parliament. Israel on Tuesday held its fifth election since 2019 in a race like the previous four that was widely seen as a referendum on Netanyahu's fitness to rule as he faces corruption charges. As always, for more news, we invite you to join us at our website, voanews.com, also on the VOA mobile app. I'm Michael Brown reporting by remote, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, November 4th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Climate-related disease outbreaks surge in the Horn of Africa. Malnourished people become sick more easily, and sick people become malnourished more easily. We know globally already that 45% of all child deaths are linked to malnutrition. The UN says close to 8 million South Sudanese are food insecure. Kenyan hurt the children's education disrupted as drought forces dropouts. Cameroon's president celebrates 40 years in power as the opposition seek electoral reforms. Lesotho's new prime minister unveils his cabinet today Friday. Participation of women, let me count them. Deputy prime minister, the first woman to be a deputy prime minister. And the second party, the lady, the minister of finance, it's a lady. And with just three days before the U.S. midterm elections, we'll speak with a candidate of Nigerian descent. Those stories plus something O'Malley sports are coming up on Daybreak Africa. As nations prepare to attend a major climate change conference in Egypt next week, the World Health Organization says climate-related health emergencies are surging and threatening the lives of millions of people in the Horn of Africa. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The United Nations reports up to 222 million people globally are facing acute hunger, 47 million of them in the greater Horn of Africa. Most parts of the region are battling the worst drought in 40 years. After four consecutive years of drought and a fifth season of failed rains looming, health experts fear great loss of life. A new WHO analysis of seven countries in the region finds disease outbreaks and climate-related emergencies have reached their highest ever level this century. Analysts have recorded a total of 39 health emergencies this year in Djibouti, Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, and Uganda. Egmont Evers is WHO's Incident Manager for Greater Horn of Africa Food Insecurity and Health. He says the food insecurity crisis in the region also is a health crisis. He says these twin disasters are interrelated. Malnourished people become sick more easily and sick people become malnourished more easily. The outcomes when disease and malnutrition are combined are worse. We know this about the combination of cholera and malnutrition, measles and malnutrition, 
common childhood diseases and malnutrition. There is more severe disease and more deaths. We know globally already that 45% of all child deaths are linked to malnutrition. Ever says lack of food also leads to increased displacement. People who suffer from food insecurity, he says, leave their homes in search of something to eat. He notes this makes the region's more than 18 million refugees and internally displaced people particularly vulnerable to illness and death. Displacement means interruption of life-saving health care, such as immunization, maternal and child care, but also increased risks, such as poor water and sanitation, overcrowding, malnutrition, risky coping behaviours and loss of livelihoods. We're seeing that these public health events are becoming more common, and the combination with increasing food insecurity and malnutrition means that they will also be more deadly. Drought is not the only extreme weather event in the region. Sudan and South Sudan have been hit with widespread torrential rains in recent weeks. The World Health Organization says South Sudan is experiencing its fourth consecutive year of flooding and estimates that 40% of the country is underwater. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Kenyan authorities say a record drought that wiped out millions of livestock and has millions of people in need of food aid is also forcing tens of thousands of children in herded communities to drop out of school. Kenya declared a national disaster from the drought in September last year, but it could also be looking at a disaster for education. Akme Hussein reports from Wajir County, Kenya. Piles of dismembered animal carcasses can be found everywhere in the wake of a devastating drought in Kenya that has left nearly 4.5 million people in need of aid. In the village of Kule in northeast Kenya, Swajia County, 11-year-old Nadir Mohammed and two of his siblings were pulled out of school in August to take care of the family's livestock. Their mother, India Abdi, says the family was forced to move to greener pastures or else the animals would have died and they would have starved. India adds that they will have liked their children to remain in school, but she says they needed their help to survive. In the village of Karu, 17-year-old Sadiq Dakane arrives at one of the few working boreholes in the area. He trekked for two hours under the scorching sun to fetch the much-needed water. Sadiq says that he left school after the drought struck, and when his father moved to Somalia, he says he was left alone with his mother. The UN Children Fund said in a report last month that more than 400,000 Kenyan students have been affected by the drought and estimated that 66,000 have dropped out of school nationwide. But the situation for children's education actually may be worse. Sources tell VOA that official estimates not yet released show 100,000 children have dropped out of school in just three counties in northeastern Kenya. Hashim El Mogi is a local good governance activist who is concerned about the long-term impact on the kids' future. If this trend continues, the rate at which people are dropping out of schools, then we risk witnessing the largest dropout rate of people from schools. The entire lives of an entire generation is at risk. And you know what that will mean? Producing a generation that does not have quality education. And then there will be a burden. You know, drug abuse, insecurity, terror networks, radicalization, and the whole nation is at risk. To lessen the impact of the drought, government and aid groups have been sinking more boreholes and bringing emergency food to herders and their livestock. However, Jilo Roba, the coordinator of the Children's Department in Wajia County, says the needs are too great and that efforts to increase school attendance among the nomadic herder communities are taking a hit. Uh, the gains that have been made in the past are being reversed. 
by the current uh, severe La Nina district drought. Officials and activists worry that if rain does not come soon, more harder families will take their children out of school and it could take months or even years to get them back in the classroom. Ahmed Hussein for VOA News, Wajia, Kenya. UN aid agencies are warning that nearly three-quarters of South Sudan's 13 million people are facing food insecurity. In a joint report released on Thursday, three agencies said nearly 8 million South Sudanese will need help to get through next year's April to July lane season. Sheila Pony reports from Juba, South Sudan. Christine Akol, not her real name, is just 15 years old but already is the mother of two children. Three years ago, her impoverished family married her off in exchange for food. Unfortunately, the man she was married to delivered only pain, both physical and emotional. A scarcity of resources forced her into subsistence farming. Even that was taken away this year by the persistent floods that have plagued much of South Sudan. Now, like many South Sudanese, Christine is not sure where her next meal is coming from. She says if there is any kind of support from NGOs, she would like them to help her. She said she doesn't have a room for sleeping because floods have taken all of her possessions. She said that she and her children don't have food or money for medical treatment. Josephine Lagu. South Sudan's Minister of Agriculture and Food Security said the report produced by the World Food Programme, UNICEF, and the Food and Agriculture Organization points to a very worrying situation for South Sudan. The most severe acutely food insecure populations are in locations with chronic vulnerabilities, worsened by frequent climate-related shocks severe flooding and dry spells, the impacts of the war in Ukraine, the macroeconomic crisis, conflict and insecurity, and of course, low agricultural production, among others. George Otto, UN Humanitarian Resident Coordinator, said UN action is needed to serve nearly 8 million people including 1.4 million who could face severe malnutrition. The report is here. This is uh, the time for action. The UN system is committed to work hand in hand with the government in its efforts to ensure that over time we will be able to address the key critical issues on food security for South Sudan. According to the UN report, Eastern Equatoria in the country's southeast has seen the most significant deterioration in food security among South Sudan, drought-affected counties. Sheila Boni for VOA News, Juba, South Sudan. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, November 4th. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports.
Lesotho's new Prime Minister, Samia Matikane, is expected to announce his cabinet today, Friday, weeks after winning the country's October 7 parliamentary elections. According to local press reports, Matikane will assume the role of Prime Minister and Defence Minister. Tabo Maripani is the deputy spokesperson for Matikani's Revolution for Prosperity RFP party. He says unlike the past when the country had a bloated cabinet, the new cabinet is expected to be smaller from 33 in the previous government to 15 members. Maripani tells me that for the first time, a woman will serve as a deputy prime minister. I think the most important part of my point of departure is we used to have a lot of ministers to 33. But because of the financial issues again to try to improve the economy of the country, and before there's an RP, when we are busy campaigning, we said we need to cut the cabinet. No more deputy ministers and cut the ministers to set in and plus the prime minister and the deputy prime minister are going to be fifteen. It means the prime minister has got a portfolio too, under a certain ministry and the deputy prime minister. So all in all, there are 15. All purpose for that, there was too much spending in the government when it comes to salaries. Wage bill was too high. So we are trying to minimize as much as we can that at least people can have benefit more than the, the official. So you are saying that the cabinet this time is going to be smaller compared to the past. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. From 33 to 15. What about participation of women? Participation of women... Let me count them. Deputy Prime Minister, she's a woman, the first woman to be a Deputy Prime Minister. Then the General Secretary, the lady, the Minister of Finance, the lady. There are two portfolios that are not yet filled, so then we are still waiting for them to see. Help us to understand, I've heard one or two people complaining about the way the Lesotho cabinet is chosen. There seems to be no separation between members of parliament and who is in the cabinet? Yeah, basically what is happening in Lesotho has been the practice for the longest time that the members of the parliament and the members of the Senate are the ones becomes minister. It has been like that all the time because you can't be a minister unless you are coming from the Senate or the parliament. So yes, because now we are getting into power, some of the things we will revisit them and see basically what can we do so that we can change some of the things. Remember the reforms that were done by the people which were not passed in the parliament by the previous parliament. So what we are going to do, we want to pass those reforms which people have put some suggestions on them. So basically there are some of them that as the new party, as the new government, we want to change some of the things. Thank you so much again. It's a pleasure to speak with you. My pleasure. It was nice talking to you. Tabo Maripani is the deputy spokesperson for Lesotho's Revolution for Prosperity RFP Party. He was speaking with us from the capital, Maseru. Cameroon's government and supporters are holding events this week ahead of celebrations on Sunday, marking President Paul Bia's 40 years in power. Meanwhile, opposition parties are holding rallies calling for the 89-year-old Bia, the world's oldest head of state, to change what they say are unfair election laws. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Supporters of President Paul Bia saying that Cameroon has remained one, undivided and prosperous, despite the numerous challenges the Central African state 
has faced since Bia became president in 1982. The singing and dancing on Thursday in Nanga Eboku on the outskirts of the capital Yaoundé was part of week-long activities marking the 40th anniversary of Bia's rule. Bia's Cameroon People's Democratic Movement, or CPDM, said it dispatched party officials to towns and villages to organize conferences and mobilize more support for the 89-year-old leader who, it says, has achieved a lot for the country. Elvis Ngolengole is one of Bia's close collaborators in the ruling party. He says under Bia's rule, Cameroon has vastly improved its education system. In 1982, we had one state university. Today, we have more than 11 state universities and hundreds of private university institutes. Incredible in 40 years. Ngole says Bia has stayed in power this long because a majority of Cameroonians love and always vote for him. However, opposition political parties accuse Bia of rigging elections for decades and wanting to stay in power until he dies. The Cameroon Renaissance Movement, led by Maurice Camto, says Camto won the October 2018 presidential election and that the victory was stolen from him. Christopher Ndong, the CRM's Secretary General, says Bia shows no signs of giving up the presidency. Cameroonians are aggrieved because of him. The opposition political parties want him to revise the electoral code, making sure the next president of this country should be democratically elected. Bia's supporters are calling on the octogenarian to run for president again in 2025, while the opposition is asking him to hand over power to a younger leader, Moki Edwin Kinzuka. For VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. It is three more days before Americans go to the polls in midterm elections on November 8. The outcome will determine which party, Republican or Democrat, will control the House of Representatives and the Senate. There are also candidates, including those of African descent, running for local state offices. One of those candidates is Esther Abaje, whose family comes from Nigeria. She is running for re-election as state representative for Minnesota House District 59B. She tells me that even though she has no Republican challenger, her campaign is in final gear during the final days. Our campaign is a little bit different this cycle. Um, last cycle, I challenged an incumbent, and so we had a lot of work to do in the primary. Um, and I also had a Republican challenger, so we also had work to do in the general election. Um, but this cycle, um, this district primarily leans Democratic, and so we didn't have a primary challenger, nor do we have a Republican challenger. So we've been spending most of the time on the campaign uh, getting people out to vote as well as helping other candidates around the state. How would you describe your first two years in office, and why do you think uh, this should re-elect you? It's been a good two years in office. A lot of the time I've spent getting to know my colleagues, building relationships, and also fighting for my district. Some of the things I fought for include making sure we have better housing laws to ensure that people who are renters have the same access to the judicial system as our landlords. Also ensuring that we had funding for emergency rental assistance. This was particularly important during the height of the pandemic to make sure that people could stay in their homes. 
I also fought to make sure that we had resources coming into our community, especially those to help young people. So those are still some of the fights that we're still having to work on, and I'm hoping that in this next cycle we can continue to make more progress. You are an immigrant of Nigeria descent, is that correct? Yes, both of my parents immigrated to the United States from Nigeria, and I was born in Minnesota. Yeah, so what does that mean, explain to our listeners in Africa, in terms of uh, democratic participation here in the United States? I think it's a good thing. We have so many people across the United States who are immigrants themselves or who are children of immigrants. And one of the things that's great about this country is that as long as you are a resident, there are ways you can participate in our democratic process. And as long as you're a citizen, which we have a naturalization process, then you can even vote and run for office. And so we see a lot of candidates at the local level, especially who are, maybe they lived in another country or maybe they um, grew up in another country or were born in another country, but they can still participate once they've made the United States home. So I think one of the most prominent examples, especially in the state of Minnesota, is our U.S. congressional representative, uh, Ilhan Omar. You're a young person. Uh, any message for young people in Africa in terms of uh, participation? Yes, I would say definitely keep participating, keep fighting, keep pushing. We know that African countries, they have so much potential, and many of them are working really hard to reach it. And I know that's because of our younger generation. So I hope that what you're seeing of your colleagues in the diaspora, your brothers and sisters in the diaspora, that that inspires you to do the same type of work at home, because I know that we're all rooting for you over here. Esther, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you, and uh, good luck on November 8th. Thanks so much, James. Really appreciate it. That was Esther Abaje of Nigerian Descent, who is running for re-election as state representative for Minnesota House District 59B. She was speaking with us from Minneapolis, Minnesota. It is time now for Daybreak Africa Sports. And here is something Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, something. Good Friday morning to you too. James, we begin the sports with basketball. The schedule and groups for the Elite 16 qualifying round for Season 3 of the Basketball African League have been confirmed following a draw ceremony at the FIBA Africa office in Abidjan on Thursday. The Ivorian city of Abidjan will host the West Division from November 14th to the 19th, while East Division will take place in Johannesburg, South Africa from November 22nd to the 27th. The team MBA Academy Africa Africa and Elan Cotton entered the early 16 round as wild cards. The 16 teams divided into four groups of four will compete for the six places available for the BAL regular scheduled for 2023. Julian Ferran, FIBA Africa Competitions Manager, conducted the draws. In total, 16 teams will participate in this Elite 16. There are nine teams coming from the group phase of the Road to BL. Competition held from 12 to 13 October with four groups of competition. We have also six teams automatically qualify for the Elite 16. This qualification is a result of their participation in the conference of BL 2022. 
And now to athletics, where organizers of the Lagos Women Run on Thursday said over 25,000 women from all walks of life will participate in the 2022 program. The coordinator, Tayo Popola, said the seventh edition of the race will take place on November the 12th. Popola said that the race had given women across the country a platform to network and improve on their health, while the elite runners have the opportunity to assess their performances. In tennis news, world number two and Tunisian Ons Jabour beats Jessica Pegula 1-6-6-3-6-3 in sensational style to win her first game at the WTA finals in Fort Worth, Texas. The Tunisian lost her opening match to Irina Sabalenka and after falling a set behind in her second tie against Pegula, gave a great response to claw her way back into the contest. Jabour lost to Sabalenka in her opening match on her finals debut but kept alive her hopes of progressing with the impressive comeback win against Pegula. Uh, she was playing really well and she was playing very fast. The balls were, were tough, very low and I know she likes to play the balls like that and um, I just had to find that click, you know, to just change up the rhythm and impose my game more than her game. CAF Champions League and CAF Confederations Cup group stage draw will be conducted on Wednesday, the 16th of November, 2022. The draw will be conducted in Cairo, Egypt, starting with the CAF Confederations Cup and thereafter the CAF Champions League will follow. The teams will participate in the group stages of the CAF Champions League have already been confirmed, while the teams participating in the CAF Confederations Cup have to wait a little longer before they can know their fate in the additional second preliminary round of the competition. And that's it on day Break African Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a nice weekend. And that's it for this Friday, November 4th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your week with us. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barty in Washington, wishing that you will have a great weekend. We'll see you again on Monday morning. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Changing of the guard in Latin America's largest country. Leftist candidate and former president Luis Inacio Lula da Silva narrowly defeated right-wing populist incumbent Jair Bolsonaro in one of Brazil's most hotly contested elections. How will former President Lula unite the highly polarized electorate? Two Latin American experts discuss the ramifications of Lula's victory in Brazil next on Encounter on The Voice of America.